You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Last week, the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, launched a two-day raid into the Janine refugee camp in the West Bank. The Israeli military had used a surprise drone strike in the early hours to target what it said was the headquarters of local militants. The camp is a cramped, heavily built-up area of just half a square kilometre, which houses 14,000 people. And although it's called a camp, it's more like an overcrowded little town than a nest of tents. And last week, it was the scene of intense fighting. Armed Palestinians began fighting back from inside the city's crowded, decades-old refugee camp. Israel says it is necessary to do this because, uh, in their opinion, Janine is the source of much of the terrorism against Israelis. Uh, but the international community is very, very alarmed. During the two-day incursion, nobody was allowed to enter the area. All that could be seen were plumes of smoke rising up above the camp as a constant barrage of explosions and gunfire echoed across the city. When our foreign correspondent, Catherine Fulp, was finally allowed in, she found homes, roads and water pipes ripped apart. A group of children described to her what they'd seen. The uh, IDF, the army, uh, stormed his house two days ago. Destroyed? Yeah, storm, storm. Stormed they, uh, the house, yeah. okay. They burned the house and... For these children, it was clear who was to blame. The IDF and the Israeli occupation. It was also clear who they saw as the heroes. The, the, our fighters defending us. We give all our support to the fighters. The Israelis say they carried out the biggest military raid on the West Bank in almost two decades because they were targeting dangerous militants. But with 12 Palestinians killed, many more injured, and thousands forced to flee their homes, have the Israelis just fanned the flames of Palestinian fury? 
Have they helped to fuel the anger and hopelessness that's creating a new generation of militants? A generation who call themselves the Janine Brigades. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, why the new generation of resistance in Janine is the most dangerous yet. I'm Catherine Philp. I'm a foreign correspondent for The Times. I go to a lot of places where there's conflict, mostly Ukraine in the last year or so. But last week I was in the Palestinian territories in the West Bank. Catherine, tell us a bit about that, because you managed to get into the Janine refugee camp in the West Bank soon after there had been this operation. Just tell us what it was like and what you saw. Yes, so Israel launched this operation in a place called uh, Janine refugee camp in the early hours of Monday morning. And we begin in the occupied West Bank, where Palestinian officials say about 3,000 people have fled their homes in the refugee camp in the town of Jenin since Israel started a major military operation there overnight between Sunday and Monday. The heaviest fighting in years raged all day in Jenin, leaving at least eight Palestinians dead and dozens wounded. I flew out the next day, and it wasn't possible to get into the camp until the operation was over. It was extremely loud, perpetual gunfire and explosions going on in the camp. Essentially, some armed Palestinian militants have sort of taken this camp as a safe haven for themselves. It's got a long history within the armed resistance to Israeli occupation. And so when I got in, it was the morning after the operation had ended, and it was a fairly extraordinary scene. For 48 hours, helicopters, drones, bulldozers, and more than a thousand troops swarmed the Janine refugee camp. I mean, it looked an absolute mess because the Israeli military had gone in with these armoured bulldozers, they're like military bulldozers, and they had just completely ripped up the tarmac on the roads. And they'd done this because the militants, they believed, had planted explosives in the road. So like of that kind of roadside bombing, IED type that we all remember from places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So they just went and ripped all that up. But of course, in doing so, they ripped up a lot of the water piping. They ripped up the electricity. And so at the time that we got inside, there was no water or electricity in the camp. But yeah, it was a pretty extraordinary scene of devastation in what is a very tightly packed area. It's only about half a square kilometre. And there's something like 13,000 people living there. And tell us about some of the people you spoke to when you got there. He's run out of his house. Okay. Okay. Um, Hakim. How old is he? Kadesh uh, Omrah. Omrah is 56. Yeah. Yeah, he's 56. Yes, and he's the owner of the house. Yeah. Can you tell me what happened? Uh, 
I spoke to people whose home had been completely destroyed, that they'd had to escape whilst the fighting was underway. They got out, and five minutes after they left, they could even see it happen. There was a, a fight between militants on that street and the Israeli forces ended with a rocket being launched into their home, and it was just burned into a blackened shell. Wow. Yes, he, he left. He, did he know they were going no, to? He no, he didn't know. So it's, it's good luck that he left. Yes, good luck for him. If, if, he, yeah. if he was in this, uh, in this room, he would die. And in terms of other people, so the day I got in to Janine was also the day of the funerals for those people killed in the fighting. Um, now, the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, had been very adamant that the only people killed were combatants. And so they said they'd had a completely clean record and had only killed 12 combatants. That's actually pretty successful in terms of these kind of raids in that very crowded area. Although there were a great deal of civilian injuries, so wounded. But what I did was attract down the family of a 16-year-old who'd been killed in the fighting. And he'd actually been killed the day before Tuesday outside the camp. So most of the people killed were people, you know, who were inside the camp. This was different. Abdul Rahman Hardan came from a village outside of Janine, so a good half hour into the countryside. So what Abdul Rahman's family told me was that he had responded to a call announced on the village mosque uh, for blood donations because obviously there was some um, violence going on in Janine. He left the village with a friend and they went into town to the hospital where they were going to get a test for their blood and then and give a donation. And that hospital was in Janine City, but not inside the actual refugee camp where the operation was taking place. And his family thought he would be safe. They, they didn't think they should be concerned because the idea had been very clear that the operation was only in the camp. So they were outside the hospital about to go in and the friend that Abdul Rahman was with uh, saw what he believed was a sniper inside the camp uh, facing down towards the hospital, shouted to Abdul Rahman to watch out. Seconds later, a shot had come from that direction, from that sniper, and it hit Abdul Rahman in the head, and he fell to the ground and was taken to hospital where he later died. So I went to the IDF with this account to see what they had to say, um, and they insisted that Abdul Rahman had been armed with an automatic rifle when he was shot. So they didn't deny that they'd shot him, they'd already addressed the issue that some 16, 17-year-olds had been shot by their forces, but they were adamant they were all combatants. So essentially, I had two conflicting accounts. And I had to find out which one was true. Now, what I did was I went hunting for CCTV footage of the incidents because, curiously, in these areas, there is CCTV everywhere. Palestinian businesses have it because these kind of confrontations often happen and they need that backup when they go to the IDF to, to show what they say happened. And when we got it, it showed exactly what the friend had told us. Abdul Rahman was with a number of people on the street outside the hospital. In the video, he uh, looks down the street as if he's been warned that there's something there and suddenly falls to the ground. 
And then you see everyone rush towards him and, and pick him up. It is clear from the video that he has nothing in his hands. No weapon, no automatic nothing. rifle. Absolutely not. No. I mean, I, I watched it and watched it and zoomed in. I, it doesn't even look like that he wasn't even carrying a stone. I mean, I, I actually thought that that might be what the IDF said when they claimed he was armed because they will class throwing stones, even at an armoured vehicle, as uh, armed assault. But no, he didn't have that. And he did not have, critically, the automatic weapon that the IDF had initially told me that he had. So, Catherine, when you went back to the IDF with this evidence, what did they yeah. say? They asked to see the video, and so I sent it to them. So there was no dispute that a sniper shot him. They, were, they, they agreed with that. They just claimed he was armed. I think what made this so difficult for them was that they had made great play of the fact that no non-combatant had been killed in this incursion. So really by showing that this kid was unarmed, we were going to spoil their perfect record. And, and he didn't want that. Because obviously we're dealing with a spokesperson. Um, so he fought back pretty hard over several hours. And yeah, he had nothing. He had nothing to give me. Um, no statement. He, no statement. No. Again, the crucial point was, was he armed when he was shot? And the IDF just have not been able to comment after having seen the video. So, Catherine, the IDF haven't come back with an answer as to how this boy, who, from your evidence, was clearly unarmed, was killed. For his family, they're stuck in the middle. You know, they're not getting any acceptance, any acknowledgement from the Israeli Defence Forces, but also he's being put up as a martyr by some of the fighters in Janine. Uh, tell me a bit about that, that sort of divergence. It must be very difficult for them because he wasn't actually a fighter. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, this is... The point that I was making to the IDF that, you know, th th these militant groups, they're not scrupulous. They will claim anyone as a martyr that they can claim. Now, it's very common when someone is killed in that kind of fighting, even in the crossfire, that a militant group will claim them as a martyr because it bolsters their cause. It shows that they're as strong, you know, yeah. how many people they had I fighting mean, them. It's e not, every it's, death there is seen as a martyrdom. Exactly. Certainly every death of a of a a boy or a man. Um, yeah, even some women and girls are, are claimed as martyrs, but absolutely with the boys. And so that's what was happening in, in this instance. But, you know, you can read a lot by the mood of, of what's going on. And the family home in the village was sort of this place of quiet devastation. When I got there, it being the day after the funeral, it was the turn of the women to mourn. So the living room in the house was full of women who'd come to support Abdul Rahman's mother. They, they want to It just felt so different to me from, you know, like a martyr's funeral, a martyr's mourning, where they're sort of celebrating that someone has become a martyr. This was not the case here. Um, did he have Did he have a plan for his future? Was there something he wanted to do for a... Yeah. 
يعني كل شاب هي طموحه اتس لايك وات يو ايفري ادلت هير دي وونت تو بي ايديوكيتد اند هي تولد مي وين يو ويل ماري ماي براذر ويل بي ماري بيكوز اي دونت يعني كان هو حابب انه يبني هي وونت تو جيت باك He wanted a family. Yeah. yeah. And Catherine, this family clearly weren't celebrating his death as a martyr. He wasn't a fighter, but you did meet some people in Janine who were. Tell us a bit about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that just because he was a fighter, wasn't a fighter, does not mean that this camp is not a hotbed of armed militancy. It is. It absolutely is. And one kid I met who had joined of his own volition at the age of 16 was was a kid called Harbosh. And he was 18. And I found him, well, I was led to him in a hospital where he was recovering from pretty severe abdominal wounds, having been shot in the stomach during the incursion. And so what happened? Uh, I was preparing something, and then the sniper can uh, sniper shoot me from the He was a fighter and made no bones about it. Um, so where were you when it happened? Inside the camp. Inside the camp. And was he? He was fighting. Or hiding? Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. He's fighting. Mm. He was a member of the Janine Brigades, which is this kind of new group that's formed in Janine refugee camp very recently, actually, in the last two years. Essentially, they were inspired by Janine's history of resistance. And so the identity is very specific to Janine. What is critically different about them is they don't take their orders from above. They have also erased all the kind of divisions between the different armed factions and all their rivalries. And the fact that they've come together in this way and they're not controlled by anyone above makes them probably more dangerous than any other iteration of militancy we've seen so far in Janine. Coming up, just how dangerous are these new Janine brigades? And after a week of violence, what hope is there for peace in the region? That's in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Catherine, you were saying earlier that there is this new coalition of fighters, the Janine Brigades, and, you know, they could be the most dangerous iteration of fighting groups that we've seen so far. Why do you think they're sort of more more deadly or more threatening? Well, firstly, because there's no way to divide and conquer them in the way that the Israeli intelligence have done in the past with these groups, you know, exploiting their differences and the different factions. So that's one thing. The other is that Israel depends on a lot of intelligence and surveillance to disrupt plots of an attack. So, you know, if if there was going to be um, a militant terror attack somewhere, they might hear about that through their surveillance of communication channels, essentially that, you know, someone higher up would pass down orders. That's not how the Janine Brigades work. So they simply will decide, you know, either alone or in a small group, maybe two fighters, maybe three, they'll pick their own targets. Now, then they'll work back to some of the, what I think we would call legacy militant groups, people like Islamic Jihad or Hamas, the people who've got the bucks, the big bucks, and most of that money is coming from Iranian sources. So the Iranian government is a large sponsor of these groups. So they'll get the money from those places, but they won't take orders from them. So there's never that communication channel to disrupt or to spy on. It's so sort of nebulous. I mean, it took me time to get my head around it because I kept saying to people, you know, explain how it works. And to to Harbosh, who was in the hospital, I said, you know, how did you join the Janine Brigades? And he always sounded baffled by the notion that you joined. Living in the camp, like, you know, does everybody just know where you go if you want to join? He said, I just decided I would be a fighter. And that was that. You know, there's no recruiting office. Everyone I spoke to who had joined traced back their decision to take up arms to the violent death of a family member or a friend. I mean, Harbosh said his best friend had been killed in front of him two years ago, and that's what inspired him to take up arms. So, yeah, it's an organic process that's being fueled by what is seen happen. And that really makes it very hard to stop because it, it becomes yeah. a vicious circle and sort of it feeds itself. And it's, it is very different to you know, as you call them, the legacy groups, these Islamic jihad, the groups that came before, where there was a a very clear central structure. 
did you speak to any of the people from that generation? I mean, how do they view this new brigade? Yes, I did. I spoke to a man called Abu Talal, who actually led me to Harbosh because he was Harbosh's uncle. Now, he had joined Fatah, the militant wing of Fatah. Um, now, Fatah was the political organization to which Yasser Arafat belonged. And it's still the dominant political force within the Palestinian Authority, which is in nominal charge of all these areas, but is you know, losing credibility. Well, I think it's lost, completely lost credibility with most Palestinians. And Abu Talal, actually, he had been out on the streets in Janine when the funeral was taking place. And he started chatting to some of them and sort of asking about their motivations. He kept asking them, what group do you belong to? And they'd say, that's all gone now. You know, the, the groups don't matter. We are all together. I think just because he had such a long history of of involvement, um, I mean, he'd spent three years in an Israeli jail because of his activities in Fatah. Oh, really? And he was in his late 40s, so he had this quite long perspective on it. He had actually, his father was killed during the 2002 incursion into Janine, the last large-scale incursion, which went much worse than, than this one. Mm. Many more people killed on both sides. He said, they're more dangerous. They're more dangerous. You, you can't tell them what to do. The Janine brigades uh, are more dangerous. Yeah, they're more dangerous. The, you know, this generation is more dangerous. But he said that, and I said, is, are you saying that as a good thing or a bad thing? And it clearly, it was a good thing to him. He, he was very impressed by the Janine brigades. Now, this is as a veteran of the armed resistance. And it's really interesting. This is sort of a younger generation, as as you were told, you know, they do seem more dangerous. They are fueled by an, an anger and kind of also a hopelessness. I mean, tell us what life is like for, for that generation inside the camp. I mean, yeah, I think what's critically different about them is that they are children of the Second Intifada. They were born during or after the Second Intifada. Just remind which us was, what that was. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a, Intifada is an Arabic word meaning uprising. And there have been two Palestinian intifadas or uprisings. The first in the 90s, which was really sort of confined to rock throwing and that kind of thing. And the second intifada, which was when you started to see like serious weaponry being used. And it was pretty violent and bloody. It really spelled an end to any peace process between the Israelis and Palestinians, even though there have since then been attempts to revive it. Nothing has really changed since then. So they've really never experienced, they've never had a sense of hope from a peace process that this might end, that this situation might be alleviated. I mean, firstly, there's, it, you know, the, the economy is in absolute tatters and has been. There are very few prospects for them in terms of employment. A place like Janine Camp is viewed with grave suspicion by the Israelis and not without reason, but there is an element of kind of collective punishment about that. So, for example, if you live in Janine refugee camps, very hard to get a permit to cross into Israel proper to work there because you're seen as a security risk. And that's even more difficult if you've been to jail yourself, then you won't get one. If a member of your family has been to jail or has had links to armed groups, you won't get one. A lot of the fighters in the Janine brigades are actually quite well educated. I mean, I spoke to a couple who spoke more or less fluent English. 
you know, some of them have degrees, but there's not a lot for them to do once they're finished their education. So they are, in a sense, trapped in this position. Yeah, I mean, this it's the daily humiliations of the occupation, this feeling that they're not in charge of their lives and they can't take charge of their lives. And Catherine, it's so interesting. You know, when you we think about the things that are fueling their anger, it is the way they've been treated in the past. And it's also talking to the different generations of terror groups that you have. You know, people are referring to incidents in in the, the second intifada, but also, you know, the last time the Janine camps, you know, there, there was an operation in the Janine camps rather like there was last week. Every time yeah. that happens, it seems to generate a whole new generation of potential martyrs of, of anger, of people with a grievance. So will this operation, I mean, in a way, does it backfire whatever happens? Because it will have created more people who are even angrier with the Israeli Defence Forces. I mean, the answer is yes. And I think that really the problem that underlines all of this is the failure to get to the root causes and, and solve it. So every every effort that the IDF makes including this raid, which, by the way, I'm not convinced that they actually wanted to do this. They were under enormous political pressure to do it, which is a whole other point. But, I mean, there's an expression they use about managing the situation in Gaza where Hamas and Islamic Jihad throw rockets at Israeli civilians from there. And they call it mowing the grass, that you have to go in every so often and sort of rough things up, blow up weapons-making facilities, whatever, try and fill in tunnels, arrest certain people. And it's just to sort of keep on top of the situation. So this raid into Janine, the IDF came away from it with a lot of weapons, but they will reconstitute and the raid will inevitably generate new recruits. And all of this is very dangerous because it's all about managing the situation, not solving it. It's really interesting that you said earlier that the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, didn't necessarily even want to conduct this operation, but they were under pressure. I mean, just explain a bit of the context there. What's been going on in Israel? Yeah, um, I mean, the reason I say that is that this activity, sort of terrorist activity linked to Janine refugee camp, has been going on for about the last 18 months. And most of that time was under a different government that didn't choose to launch this kind of operation. What changed was that at the beginning of this year, the great survivor of Israeli politics, Benjamin Netanyahu, made a comeback in elections. But the only way that he was able to form a government was by co-opting as coalition partners some of the most extreme far-right groups in Israel People who, you know, were really seen in the past as on the absolute margins of Israeli politics, so extreme and nationalistic and pro-settler are their views. And that has put pressure on the IDF to act because there have been numerous terrorist attacks on Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And yeah, it was mounting pressure on them to act. Some military sources suggested that, you know, if if it had been up to them, they would have been in and out of Janine within 24 hours and that they could do what they needed to. But they actually had to drag it out for two days because of the political pressure on them. 
They had to make it look like an even bigger operation. They had to make it look like a bigger operation, exactly. And Catherine, you know, watching this operation play out over those two days and then seeing the damage that had been done, you know, I think a lot of people were just reminded of, you know, the messy history of of this region. Just stepping back, you know, where is any kind of a, a peace process? Are is, is the current government, who, as you said, a, a much more extreme than previous ones, is there any form of negotiation going on? Is there any hope now for a two-state solution? What, what's happening? I, I don't think the two-state solution's been viable for about a decade. Yeah. It's dead. It's dead in the water. And in fact, you know, if you speak to Palestinian youngsters, and I don't mean fighters here, I just mean, you know, regular people, they'll just look at you blankly because... <laughs> You know, that's never been viable in their lifetime as they've known it. And then many people feel that they might have to try and fight for their civil rights within a one state shared with the Israelis. But that is not going to happen either. You know, Israel was founded as a Jewish state. Israel is very keen to control the demographics of its state. The problem is that by occupying the West Bank, they've got millions of Palestinians on their hands. And you can't have a Jewish state if you've got a Arab majority. How's that going to work? So, you know, this is in in a sense a problem of Israel's own making. It wanted the land, (laughs) but not the people of the West Bank. And Catherine, you've covered the region for years. You used to be based in Jerusalem. Going back now, seeing the Janine camps after this operation, seeing the damage that has been done... How did that feel? And what, I mean, what are your best hopes for for the place? Well, yeah, it's really difficult to go back and see the same confrontations, the same vicious circles. It's cyclical, you know, the violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's depressing. It's everyone is managing the situation as it exists. They're not solving it. And so I think you sort of have to tell the story of what you find but but with this awareness that you know things do happen cyclically and will continue to repeat and take on these cycles these vicious circles until the roots of the problem are confronted but uh, unsolved but again you know we're no better we're no closer to there to being there than we ever have been in fact further apart. So I'm afraid I don't feel very hopeful at all about what I see. And that's tremendously sad for everyone involved because, you know, civilians on both sides are getting killed. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, diplomatic correspondent for The Times, Catherine Philp. If you're a subscriber, you can read all of Catherine's brilliant reporting from around the world at thetimes.co.uk. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.